This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Lance Robinson, a research scientist studying human dimensions of sustainable resource development at the Center for Northern Forest Ecosystem Research in Ontario, Canada. I reached out to Lance because of his expertise on community-based natural resource management and specifically the management of rangeland systems. Lance has studied rangelands as social ecological systems for many years and has contributed to an alternative way of viewing them that departs from some of the traditional assumptions about environmental commons and governance. In this conversation, we make specific reference to the design principles for sustainable community-based natural resource management developed by Eleanor Ostrom in her famous book, Governing the Commons, which she published in 1990. Much of what we discuss has to do with Ostrom's first principle, which stipulated that successful communities are aided by boundaries that delineate who is and who isn't a community member and where the resources belonging to that community are. Lance's work unpacks the importance of boundaries in rangelands, in part through what he calls a complex landscape mosaic, which reflects the fact that in real systems, particularly in rangelands, there are many overlapping and shifting boundaries that are designed to help resource users adapt to inherent resource scarcity, more than they are designed to prevent the overuse of the commons, which is how social and ecological boundaries in this context are usually interpreted. This conversation builds on a previous interview that I did for the podcast with Mark Moritz on pastoralists and the role of what Mark calls open property systems. And you should check out that interview as well if this one interests you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lance Robinson. To start our conversation off, Lance, I'd love to hear your version of what I call the origin story question. What were some of the foundational moments early in your life and career that when you make sense of your career path, um, help you do that sense making? You know, what led you down this path in terms of your own decisions and, and things that happened for you and, and to you? Well, I, I, I think it, I mean, I trace it back to um, a volunteer experience I had um, fresh out of university, uh, fresh out of my undergrad. Uh, I volunteered with a program called Canadian Crossroads International, which had been a, sort of a sister program of the precursor to uh, the Peace Corps in the United States, um, which I think had a had a Operation Crossroads Africa was was the name of it in the in the United States. So this this Canadian volunteer program, Crossroads, just it's like Peace Corps or VSO or these other programs, just sends people overseas and. Sometimes in semi-professional roles, um, sometimes just like teaching at a high school, that kind of thing. And that's what I was doing, was teaching at a high school. Um, and I went to the Gambia. And I just, I completely fell in love with the, the culture and the people. Um, and I mean, I had this idea that I was going to come back to Canada. This was going to help me. I had a vague idea this would become me help me become a more well-rounded person or something like that. And then I'd get on with my, you know, quote, unquote, real life. Um, but that experience, I, it, I didn't realize immediately, but eventually it, it led me to rethink my, my whole career goals. So, um, and I realized I wanted to do something in the realm of international development. And I went back to university and I got a master's in uh, international rural development planning and I was 
looking for a, a research topic and a research place, and I knew I wanted to go back to the Gambia. And um, as I was looking at issues around land and land governance um, and things that would fit into sort of this, what was the focus of this sort of interdisciplinary planning school, um, I found a topic on uh, grazing land and land tenure. And so how, how land is governed and the, the rules and so on about who manages land, who gets to make decisions for land. And so that became my master's topic. Um, and from there, I went into consulting work, uh, mostly like uh, consulting work and, and occasionally jobs with NGOs. Um, and by the time I was done my master's, I had like zero interest in continuing on in academia. Um, it took me about 10 years to, to want to, you know, to even think about wanting to do a PhD. Um, but after having worked for 10 years um, in, in the field, I wanted the time and felt I was ready to have a time to step back and uh, step back and think. And so I, you know, I looked around and I found a program that looked interesting um, and, uh, and ended up working with uh, Fikret Berkus at the University of Manitoba. Um, and in fact, a, a book of his had been on my shelf uh, since the, the time in my master's. And I said, I said wow, okay, this is, this is a guy I've read and cited before when I was doing my master's. And so I went to do a PhD with him, and I, I was interested in, in water resources management. And I thought maybe like, you know, watershed management. I thought, I'd, I, I, thought I would become like a, a watershed guy. Um, but he had funding uh, for looking at the United Nations Development Program Equator Initiative winners um, and, and nominees. Um, so he you know, had several masters and PhD students with, who had funding from him to go look at one of these organizations that had been nominated for the UNDP Equator Initiative Prize. And there was one in Kenya that had some some issues on water and issues on livestock and pastoralists. And so uh, I went and did that research in Kenya. And once again, it was on topics of land governance with pastoralists. And so, you know, sort of by accident, uh, land governance with pastoralists became my thing and it became the focus of my work. And by the time I was done the PhD, I was like thoroughly invested and yeah, I want to, I want to work more on these issues. So that's, yeah, that's, that's sort of where I went. From there, I um, did a postdoc, uh, was a research scientist at the International Livestock Research Institute, and, and I've continued to work on uh, land governance issues with pastoralists since then. So a couple of follow-ups occur to me here, Lance. One is you said that fairly early on, you decided that you weren't going to um, enter academia, that that was not for you. Can you say more about why you felt that way? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I wanted to, I wanted work that, you know, I had my fingers in the pie that I was on the ground full time, not, you know, not uh, four months out of the year to go do a research project or, you know, something like that. I wanted to be on the ground doing things. Um, and, uh, and I think at, at that time, I think as well, just the, 
the research process um, and writing up the research by the by the I I loved doing the research in, in during my masters um, that experience being on the ground interviewing people learning and then by the time I was done the field research I felt okay good I've done what I want to do and now I've got to jump through these hoops of turning it all into this thick book and go through some processes of having it approved by professors and uh, at that stage it felt like a chore um, mm. uh, as I said, eventually, you know, I, I was interested to step back and reflect and think, and the PhD seemed the, the venue to do that. And perhaps along the way, I sort of accustomed myself to, to writing my ideas. And so like writing the PhD dissertation, in fact, was, felt less daunting to me than the master's, the master's thesis. Does this relate to an earlier part of your answer where you talked about when you went to the Gambia for the first time, it sounded like that was kind of a formative experience for you. And you said you fell in love with being there. And so there, I feel like I'm also hearing the, this importance of being in a place. Is that, does that make sense when you're trying to think about like what matters to you? Can you talk a bit more about like why you fell in love with being there and what was it about those experiences? Can you kind of paint a picture for the reader? I mean, the listener, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess it was it was partly about uh, the culture of the place, which I mean that could be something is doesn't necessarily have to relate to to research or development work or environment work of just you know being in that culture, um, the the outgoing gregarious nature of people in the Gambia. Just I, it was so easy to make friends, and I did make lots of friends that I've uh, stayed in touch with. Um, but part of it too is just yeah, being in the place and getting to learn it and becoming, uh, in in a slight way. I mean, never completely, uh, never becoming an insider, never becoming a Gambian. But you know, little by little, getting closer to being there, as opposed to like I've never been one to enjoy traveling as a tourist. Um, you know, after by by the end of the second week of being on vacation and staying in a hotel, it's like, okay, I'm I'm done. I want to be in my own bed. Um, but going to be somewhere for like four months or eight months or several years, uh, that just, it feels different. And I think that spills over into, into the research work as well of, you know, being able to, to be there and repeated and ongoing interactions with, with the people I'm working with. I'm also aware that you've kept up uh, a kind of like an intellectual professional blog for a long time. Could you talk to me about, what that what motivates you to do that and what that experience is like for you because i feel like there is a sense of well i've had a sense of wanting to kind of have more room for self-expression than a kind of standard academic article affords me i'd love to hear you just talk about like that side of your kind of intellectual life sure well yeah i guess um i at some point i decided i wanted to do that i wanted uh I wanted a venue where I could just put out ideas out there, um, including half-formed ideas, things that I was just thinking about and unsure about, um, things that I feel passionate about, but I don't have data on. Like I don't, I don't have the material to to write a paper unless I decided to dive in and write something, you know, purely theoretical. Um, and so, yeah, just a venue to to put my thoughts down in writing and help me think things through. And so, and that blog has, uh, 
there's bits and pieces. There's little, there's you know particular entries in the blog I can go back to and say, oh, okay, now I remember that you know me writing this this installment of the blog actually some of those ideas eventually worked their way into a paper, mm. uh, and so it was yeah it was an opportunity for me just to to shape my own ideas and. In fact, it was it was as much about that as it was like reaching an audience. I, I mean, in fact, it was more more about that than reaching an audience. Like, I in fact, I've never really bothered to pay attention to to how many hits on the on the web page or anything. So I'm I'm not even sure if if uh, you know people were reading the entries. Um, uh, I you know I shared it around in my network. You know, I posted it on my on my Twitter when I when I had a new entry, but. Uh, um, mostly it was just, I was doing it for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a phrase I really like that. I feel like you're reflecting, which is writing is thinking, you know, I think that there's often this idea that you like have your thoughts and then like you express them in your writing or by speaking, right. We're supposed to have this kind of like one, two step process. And I think that really uh, uh, making that assumption robs us of an opportunity to do a lot of this, like verbal and not, uh, and writing by thinking right yeah. and so I, I, yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me yeah it's been trying ideas on for size and yeah yeah does the blog almost become like a, a library for you also to kind of like look back at previous thoughts because i could see that being quite helpful actually for myself if i was going to do this for example yes it i mean at first it wasn't but once you know once i'd been doing it for a while and i was like you know like a year and a half in um i aimed to make a new post once a month um didn't always live up to that, but um, you know, once I had like you know more than more than a year's worth of posts, then it started to become something of okay. I was thinking about this, and and I remember I had some idea that would fit with this new research I'm doing or this new paper I want to write. Okay, yeah, that was in one of my blog posts. Let me go find that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that idea. I mean, I, I I like to think that for the incumbent podcast, we're kind of slowly growing a library as well of of interviews that people can kind of listen to, like browse for certain topics. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me. So Lance, you mentioned already, and this is you know I, I've read some of your work on pastoralism and land governance, and so that's kind of the meat of what I'm hoping to talk to you about. And you mentioned. Um, your work um, in Kenya. I'm aware of a 2010 paper you call it with Fikret on resilience and pastoralism in Kenya. There are some traditional narratives about how the, the commons should be governed, how environmental resources that are shared by many people should can and should be governed. And in our initial correspondence and in setting up this interview, you know, I think you um, mentioned that, uh, the rangelands and pastoralism are kind of different in some ways and have different implications for how we understand the roles of institutions and governance arrangements in managing, um, this type of resource. Can you talk about how your work has impacted some of the kind of standard thoughts about how land should be governed? How is pastoralism kind of different from what we often think about when we think about natural resources and the governance of shared commons? So there've been bits and pieces of research like for a long time. Um, and when I was starting to work on some of these livestock and rangeland and pastoralism issues, I was seeing this in the literature at the same time as I was learning about Eleanor Ostrom and, and commons theory. 
And over the years, there have been lots of little bits and pieces of, of ways they just they don't seem to, to fit with each other. Um, and a lot of these seem to relate back to the, the first design principle. Right, so those uh, eight, sorry, eight design principles in the classic formulation, and other people have suggested other slight variations, but that first design principle was that well-governed commons uh, will have uh, clearly defined social group boundaries and clearly defined resource boundaries. And it's, it's perfectly logical that if, if, you, if you're assuming or wanting that uh, a local community, the commoners, have the ability to govern a resource, then they and their neighbors and governments or other stakeholders around, it makes sense that everyone should be clear on what that resource is and where one community's resource starts and another community's resource ends. So you've got clear spatial boundaries. And having clear social group boundaries too seems, seems perfectly logical that if if a community is going to be making investments, making sacrifices, investing in, in the social capital, in the transaction costs of creating and enforcing rules, then they need, you're going to assume that you know, they should be the ones who are getting the benefit of that investment. And that's what creates the, the incentive for them to keep going. Um, I think both of those are part of dealing with the free rider problem and in, in you know, collective action problems. But a lot of research on pastoralism in different ways has been seeing how this doesn't seem to apply, that the communities are more fuzzy and flexible, overlapping, multi-level than seem to be described in, in the commons literature, that you know, what's a community is, is kind of a vague, fuzzy, squishy, subject in, in pastoral communities. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of emphasis in a lot of pastoral communities on, on boundaries, on social unit boundaries. Um, and I know you've, I know on this podcast uh, you've, you talked to Mark Moritz um, yep. roughly, roughly a year ago, and he talked a bit about um, cases where the it, it, looks like, it looks like an open access situation, which in the commons literature, open access typically means the rules have broken down. Either, either, they, were, either they were never there or they, were, they used to be there and some social process, some bad policy decisions or whatever caused those social rules to break down. Open access is a free-for-all. Um, whereas in a lot of pastoral groups, open access isn't a lack of rules. Open access is the rule. Open access, you have the right as, as a person with livestock to access resources where and when you, you need them. So in, this, is, this is like an area where sort of the basic simple formulation of commons thinking actually agrees with Hardin, but Garrett Hardin, but just puts a different name on it. Hardin called that the tragedy of the commons. Common scholarship would say, no, that's not actually commons. That's a tragedy of open access. In a lot of pastoral societies, though, and this is something that Mark pointed out in some of his, his early papers, was we seem to have open access without a tragedy occurring. We seem to have open access, um, and yet the evidence that 
people are overusing the resource and then you've got a tragedy is, is just not there. Um, those of us who work with pastoralists gradually began thinking, okay, well, what's stepping back, like thinking about this theoretically, what's going on with, with commons theory and property rights and what's happening in pastoralism that are the expectations of, of theory aren't there. And a lot of it has to do with variability. So a lot of pastoral systems are, are located in places with extremely high spatio-temporal variability. The, this is particularly the rainfall, and then the rainfall in turn influences how much the grass grows, how much forage is available. Um, it varies across time. It varies from year to year, from season to season. And one year may not look the same as another year. And it varies across space, that where the rain falls one year and where the grass grows one year won't be the same as where it falls another year. And so if you, if say uh, a policymaker comes in and the policymaker has been influenced by community-based natural resource management and has been influenced by Eleanor Ostrom, that policymaker may say, okay, well, let's, let's help these communities to ensure they've got clearly defined group boundaries and we help them form committees or we help them reinvigorate and re-strengthen their traditional institutions and let's ensure that we've got clear boundaries so everyone knows which communities own what. If you do something like that in a lot of pastoral settings, before long you're going to hit a year in which one community is in a situation where the rain has fallen elsewhere and they've got nothing for their livestock to graze on. Um, and, and so you've, you know, you've got mobility happening. So in fact, you know, that leads us to ask a question, well, how did pastoralists do this before scholars and NGOs and government policymakers began thinking about commons and community-based natural resources and community, communal land tenure? And... The governance in a lot of pastoral systems, it just looks, it looks different than, say, traditional or indigenous governance in, say, a forest community. And I think a lot of the case studies that went into commons scholarship, uh, that informed commons scholarship, were, were based on situations where the resources were fairly local and... Within the, within the culture over hundreds or, or thousands of years, the community had developed something that was described quite accurately by you know, the, the design principles and by the idea of uh, a well-defined community managing a well-defined resource. Um, and in the, with pastoralists, it was just their governance looked different. And so that's, that's where a lot of that work has, has led people who do research on pastoralists and has then led us to try and figure out, okay, well then what was it traditionally and what is it now and how does the interaction of policies that are informed by mainstream thinking, how was that impacting on pastoralists? Um, and just leading to a lot of interesting questions and a lot of policy challenges on the ground of how do you, how do you strengthen property rights for a community when that community is very mobile and they traditionally had norms that emphasized access and, and the right to access resources over ownership and management rights. Um, yeah, but maybe I better stop there. I could go on, go on in this for a while.
No, I mean, I'm hoping that we keep on talking about this for a little bit. I mean, I really liked Lance when you said uh, open access isn't an absent of rules. Open access is the rule. And you mentioned Mark's work from our previous interview, and both you and he have talked about this idea of, of open property, an open property regime. And I'd be interested in hearing you talk a little more about that because I, well, my question about it is you're questioning the, the traditional framing and the narrative about open access as being something that's necessarily maladaptive, something that's necessarily going to lead to negative outcomes because you don't have constraints on use. And so you're going to have free riding and you're going to have the overuse when people take advantage of other people's uh, restraint. And I guess the question is, is, is the, this idea of an open property regime to you, is it kind of a, a reframing of open access, arguing that what we've traditionally seen as being maladaptive can actually be something that's adaptive given the context you're describing of, of a lot of variability, high mobility, which to me is almost like the dominant fact, like adaptive factor here, along with fuzzy boundaries to me, like fuzzy boundaries and, and mobility kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. How, how do you view this idea of what's the, what's the utility to you of this concept of, of an open property regime, as opposed to open access or other, you know, the, the standard kind of property regimes we think about pointing to the actor that owns something. It's a public property, et cetera. What's the work that this new other, this new concept does for you? So, I mean, I, and I do, I do think it's, it's relevant and, and, and fruitful to, to distinguish open access as it has been described in literature and observed where you've got overuse of resources because, because there isn't a functioning state property system or communal property system or, or private property system, that open access is, is still real. And, you know, understanding tragedies of open access is still important. Um, and, but I think the, an open property regime that's well-functioning in some of these pastoral situations uh, that, that Mark described, to me is it's, it's got a lot of outward similarities to open access, but it's also something different. And it's different. Be, it if it's different, it's different because you've got a set of things that that make it work, and and don't lead to tragedies. Um, you've got a set of rules or norms, um, rules and and norms usually, that that shape how how people work. And so part of that is having some some cultural norms about being mobile, and and having the ability to be nor be mobile. Um, it, those situations often involve uh, information exchange and when it's, when it's modeled sort of abstractly in sort of a game theory kind of approach or, or using some agent-based modeling approach, we're usually assuming perfect information that every herder in your model knows where the grass is growing. So they're not, they're not facing an uncertainty of sh should I go there or should I not? which is not unreasonable in a pastoral situation because there, a lot of cultural practices of pastoralists are about finding out where has the rain fallen, where is the grass growing, if there's enemy groups around that, that might try to steal my livestock, where are they? And that, 
that happened in the past. It was part of part of the culture, even of of greetings when you pastoral groups that I've worked with. When you go to a new community and you meet meet someone who's say from a cousin of yours or someone from another clan, but part of your same ethnic group, the first thing you do in greeting is you start talking about where the grass is growing and how the rainfall is, and you exchange information about that. And these days, it's mobile phones. And um, I'll, I mean, I'll share a little anecdote that, that sort of demonstrates this, that when I was doing my PhD research in northern Kenya, I was being hosted by uh, a local NGO that was, that was staffed by and run for pastoralists. There was, it was a local NGO of people from, from the local ethnic groups, pastoralist ethnic groups. And the leader of that NGO was running for a member of parliament. And he's got a vast constituency. I think it was the largest constituency in the country. So he's got a lot of ground to cover in doing campaigning. And he had a team of people helping him campaign. And, and he took his time off from working with the NGO to go do his campaign. And he bought uh, satellite phones. And he needed those satellite phones because there was no, there's no mobile phone coverage. So to stay in touch with his, his campaign team, he got each of them a satellite phone. And those satellite phones worked like a prepaid cell phone that you get you get so many minutes right and um, so they went out there to start doing the campaigning and their minutes were used up within within a few days because once they were out there people were asking well how's how's the how's the grass growing over there and did it rain on this on the other side of that mountain over there we'd like to find out so oh well I've, I've got this satellite phone thing with me let me let me call someone over there because I know he's over there and it, it threw a wrench in his campaign, but the, those satellite phones were like, wow, the pastoralists love those. This is, like, this is like our own culture on steroids. And where mobile phones have become more common now, they just they seem to me almost like, like I, I joke sometimes that I think the inventor of a mobile phone must have been a pastoralist because they just, they, it's like a perfect example of, of appropriate technology that fits just right in with how the culture works. But why I'm, I mention this is that open property regimes need that exchange of information. And if you've got that exchange of information and you've got the, the herder has information about where grass is available, then if, if there's a place he would like to go to, but he knows someone else is there, then he can look around, okay, well, what's the second best pasture I can go to? And, and he'll have his own criteria as to what makes it best and, and better in terms of how close is it to water? How close is it to where my family is? Um, what are the conditions of the soils like there? All, all kinds of things like that. But that, that leads to pastoralists spreading out across the landscape. And then the other component of that is, is something that where the, the social science on pastoralism has converged with the rangeland ecology. And the rangeland ecology around in, in the same period, like say over the last last three decades has been realizing a lot of the pastoral rangelands are non-equilibrium systems. And what that means is the driving factor is not a balance between the number of grazing species and the amount of forage available. I mean, that's sort of a typical thing you learn when you're learning biology in, in high school of, you know, uh, population numbers of, of some species and it goes up and down and and whatever that species eats that 
that gets affected by that as well. And if the food starts to dry up, then the, the animals can't survive and their numbers drop. And you get a balance. You get some kind of equilibrium. But in pastoral systems, often that variability is so great that at some point or other, there's going to be a drought and there's not going to be water available and there's not going to be forage available because the forage didn't grow because there was no rain. And that takes care of any, any possibility of overgrazing, of overabundance of livestock numbers. So you've got the herders are able to move wherever they need to, and their numbers rarely get out of control to cause any degradation on the land because the variability of the climate takes care of that. Um, and so in that situation, using your, using your time to make an investment in transaction costs, you know, we, we call it in, uh, in thinking about property rights, the transaction costs of creating rules and enforcing those rules of ensuring who's part of the group and who's not part of the group and all of that stuff that would go into a commons in another kind of situation, say a village and its village forest, is much more expensive in a pastoral situation and it's not worth it. That those transaction costs don't yield any benefit because what what would you do in a in a village forest? You're making rules about well, let's make sure we don't cut too many of our own trees, and let's make sure we exclude the outsiders who might come in and cut our trees. But in a pastoral situation with a non-equilibrium, highly variable uh, rainfall regime, drought takes care of that without any social institutions trying to worry about about livestock overgrazing. Hmm. Okay. In some of your writing, Lance, you've also talked about other potential coping and adaptation strategies to droughts, such as selling livestock off. Could you talk a bit about what kind of findings that you found in your work with respect to other coping strategies to drought? Sure. Um, well, it's, and more and more, I mean, pastoralists are in, in many countries are getting more and more integrated into the market economy. And um, there's, there's always a tension though, that where, where livestock is the main, main storehouse of your capital um, and, and it's also the, the main source of growth for you. If you know that at some point there's gonna be a drought or maybe there's gonna be disease that kills livestock or, or maybe there's going to be some conflict or there'll be theft. You want to have some, some animals ready to reproduce. And mm. the larger your herd is, the, the more quickly you can reproduce. So there's that, there's an incentive to not get rid of too many livestock. In fact, there's an incentive to have as big a herd as you po possibly can. If, if a drought is going to come and wipe out 50% of your livestock, if your herd is hundred animals, that's better than if your herd is 50. Um, but as I think the pastoral communities uh, in, in a lot of places, if not most places around the world, have, have been diversifying and becoming more integrated in, in market systems. And so now there's, there's other options more and more available and starting to look you know, more and more attractive. So that, that driver, uh, that incentive to have a large herd is still there, but now there's, there's other possibilities that moderate that. And that's, 
you know, in, engaging in the market economy, um, using livestock as a source of capital and transforming it into some other source of capital like money, which you then use to buy something else you need, a truck or a, or a house or a business that some of your family members can go run the business, whatever it might be. I mean, that's, that's happening more and more. But that's, that's sort of one example of the diversification that's now being added on to types of diversification that were there initially of having more than one species of livestock, having your herd split up in more than one place so that if something happens in one place, maybe the, the animals in the other place will be there. Um, but now you have these other, other layers of diversification and, and risk spreading is becoming more common as well. Okay. Do you see some of that as like a double-edged sword? Because there's also a traditional narrative amongst many common studies that market integration can disrupt uh, incentives towards a natural resource base. Do you see any kind of trade-offs being involved in these tr in these transitions? Certainly. certainly. I mean, particularly if you look at it at the, the scale of a whole system. Uh, if you've got wealthy people who are looking at a a land governance system that traditionally has not worried about excluding outsiders or having rules about how many livestock a person can own or where they graze them, then that becomes an attractive investment as a business opportunity if, if there's a market for the livestock products. And so having wealthy people then take advantage of you know, an open property type system becomes a danger of if those wealthy people are also people who have have big lorries that, okay, there's a drought happening, I'm going to move my herd across the country, or I'm going to move my herd to a paddock, and I'll bring them water and, and hay. And so now, whereas before, the number of livestock that the traditional pastoralists were having would never get to be enough to, to overgraze a system, there's a danger as if you've got a, a market-based system functioning alongside and sort of half integrated with that pastoral system. Now there's the possibility that the livestock numbers won't fall as fast when a drought comes, um, which on the one hand is good. It's okay, we're not, not seeing all this capital just disappear because there's a drought and it's just destroyed. Um, but on the other hand, it may mean, well, we need new new systems in place to ensure sustainability, to ensure that we're managing the resource. Because in the past, managing the resource was sort of an emergent outcome of the system. Just the pastoralist looking around for as soon as a place looked like it was starting to get grazed too much, okay, I'm moving somewhere else so my livestock can be healthy. Um, but if that mechanism doesn't function anymore, because now in some years, there's just too many livestock around and there's people who've come in and with investments they made from somewhere else, now they're suddenly dumping thousands of cattle into our system. And they're moving their, their cattle to a place faster than the local people can. They're capturing all of that forage uh, for the benefit of their livestock. And then when it's gone, those livestock can be loaded up in lorries and move somewhere else. You mentioned the importance of variability as a kind of defining feature in these systems. And that to me brings us to another concept that I've seen in your work, this idea of resilience. And it, I think it's interesting to talk about resilience in the context of property rights in part because the, the dominant literature on property rights from a kind of law and economics perspective doesn't talk much about 
resilience or vulnerability. The main outcome that you hear talked about there is like efficiency. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about what the role of resilience is in these systems. Like why is it important as an outcome to take into account when you're trying to interpret what these systems are doing? Well, I think when, when you look then at how the, how local people are, are coping and creating their livelihoods in that situation where there's, there's so many risks uh, and so many sources of vulnerability for at the, at the individual level, how, how uh, an individual or, or a household is going to survive becomes a key question then. Um, efficiency only goes so far when if I'm efficient and every year I'm producing efficiently and getting them, you know, the, the best sort of bang for the buck from, from my resource, but it gets to year five and then we have a devastating drought. And because I wasn't resilient, because I didn't have those coping mechanisms in place, my herd is wiped out then, you know, then you've, you've got a problem. So trying to find a system where, uh, you know, a set of arrangements that allows for, allows for coping on the, at the level of the individual and, and also like at, at the level of a social ecological system of, in terms of the, the ecological processes and how those ecological processes relate to and are affected by what's happening uh, in the social system in terms of, you know, the economics and how livestock are being brought in. And, you know, that example we talked about a moment ago of, you know, if there's a sort of a new market driven factor coming in and influencing ecological dynamics because it's changing how, what livestock are there and how those livestock move. So you've got a question about the ecological resilience as well and how all of those things fit together then becomes a big challenge. And so that's been some of what I've been trying to look at over the years and, and try to try to understand and appreciate, well, what's, what kind of combinations of, of institutions and norms and environmental management practices and so on can work in the context of this broader political and economic environment that we're sitting in. Um, and in terms of the particular ecology of the, the place we're working in and, that variability and to step back from what that resilience analysis tells you and just sort of step back and see if there's like a key takeaway message. I mean, to me, it was, it has been that what's going to work in one system may look quite different than somewhere else. And so that the institutions, the norms, the, the mix of different solutions is, is, something that's going to be different in different places and then under different situations and will also change over time. Um, it's, you know, trying to get away from the, the panacea type thinking where, you know, we identify every, every solution as being, you know, for example, and I mean, this is where, you know, people in, in your field and mine sometimes make a mistake, I think, is we identify every problem as a collective action problem and the solution is always to create some kind of commons in some way or other. Mm -hmm. What situations do you think should not be identified as a collective action problem? I'm assuming you, you, you mean the pastoral system being one of those cases where like the, yeah. the, the collective action framing is not the dominant framing for this type of human environment relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned one of the, one of the factors that allows pastoralists to, to use their resource sustainably 
without necessarily having the types of community level institutions we would recognize as okay this is this is what a commons is about these are these are some of the communal governance institutions and so pastoralists having something that's not quite that um, and doesn't doesn't quite meet those characteristics understanding what those are and part of you know how they did that was well if if they're free to move and if they've got access to information to know where to move then often they will spread themselves out across the landscape they'll move to where the resource hasn't been used heavily and that then in in some situations will lead to an emergent sort of sustainability that's not it's not driven from community community level institutions and collective action it's driven from the bottom up by just it's the sum total of each each pastoralist doing their own thing so for that that where those systems are breaking down often it's not it's a collect, not a collective action problem it's uh, it can be an information problem uh, so you know how, how do you ensure that the information is there that people have the ability to move sometimes it's it's a resource problem of having enough resources to move um, now you there's still a challenge though and that's that you know as land is is a resource that eventually is going to face some competition now pastoral rangeland systems sometimes have been a bit protected by that and there's sort of a there's a tongue-in-cheek definition of rangelands it's rangelands rangeland ecosystems and that tongue-in-cheek definition is that rangelands are ecosystems that people haven't found a more profitable use for yet hmm. but as as technologies develop say irrigation technologies for example that okay this land i was never interested in that land before those pastoralists they can use it it's too dry i can't grow my crops there but now I know how to irrigate it. Now I can dig a borehole or I can run a pump up from the river. Now that land becomes valuable for something else. Um, so how can, how can you ensure that pastoralists aren't losing their land? And when they lose that land, often the land they're being lost, land that's being lost is crucial. That it's not land they use every year, but that land beside the river is land that they need to go to when there's a drought. In other places, in other years when it's not, when there's no drought and the rain's falling everywhere, they'll, they'll spread across the landscape. But in a drought, that's the place they used to go to. And so having access to that is, is key to their survival over the longer term. And if that's the first land that's always lost to some other kind of development, then it puts the whole system at risk. And so how do you, how do you ensure property rights for pastoralists in a way that still respects their, their culture and respects the details and the, and the complexity and the variability of the ecosystems they're, they're living in. And that that's, leads to something that has been called the, the paradox of pastoral tenure. Because the, the typical ways that you would ensure a community has those kind of property rights, either it might be private property or it might be some kind of communal property system you're creating a, a land tenure system that recognizes community organizations and their right over clearly defined parcels of land which have been mapped out. Those kinds of solutions to giving a pastoral community property rights are, are the kinds of solutions that also put a, put a 
put some constraints on their mobility and their flexibility. Uh, so trying to figure out how to, how to recognize property rights in a way that still allows that flexibility and reflects the pastoral systems is, is a challenge a lot of us have been trying to think about. It makes a lot of sense to me that we don't have kind of a traditional collective action problem based on resource overuse and that the problem, as you say, one of them at least is about information sharing to help facilitate this kind of mosaic of land use that's shifting over time. Part of it still feels a little bit similar to me in the sense that there must be, maybe I'm assuming here and you'll tell me I'm wrong, but it does seem like there must be some kind of norm of reciprocity about I give you information and you give me information. Is that happening? Which feels like cooperation at least a little bit. Because what's my motivation to give you information? Yeah. And my emotional intuition is that like, well, it's because I also will need some information down the line. So there is some kind of, it's not a free for all. I mean, I think that's important to say that just because there isn't collective action in traditional sense, there's still some coordination or cooperation happening most concretely in this conversation that we're talking about in the form of sharing information about resource conditions. Does that, am I on the right track here? You think? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And it's, I mean, it's, it's not a, it's often not a collective action problem around direct overuse of the resource and how do we, how do we control that overuse of the resource? How do we deal with the free riding about the person who doesn't follow grazing rules or, you know, in the case of a forest community, tree cutting rules? But yeah, there's still coordination and information sharing and reciprocity things happening. Okay. And so, but then stepping back and looking out at a larger landscape scale and depending on, you know, a few different factors as to, you know, what's, how heterogeneous is this landscape and how, how diverse is it in terms of places where there's good water and, you know, stable, like uh, permanent water sources in terms of sort of what's the balance between pastures that, uh, are effective as, as areas to graze in the dry season versus areas that that can be grazed uh, only in a rainy season because that's when the you know the rain has fallen and there's no other water available, um, and and socially in terms of the you know what groups are there and how they relate to each other and if there's other land uses mixed in, so you can get a situation where across a whole pastoral landscape you can point to certain areas and 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 say, okay, this resource here, this does look like a commons. Mm-hmm. This does okay. fit, fit the rules. So this, this resource that it's managed by this local settlement, and they've, they've got rules, and they always, this is, we only use this in this season, and this is how many livestock you can put on there. And if someone from some other community wants to come use it, they've at least got to ask us permission first, and we might say no. Um, you've got other resources where it's kind of fuzzy and flexible. You've got resources where... Most of the time, it's it's open and there's not much rules. But under certain conditions, a higher level institution like like a whole like a council for the whole clan will say, you know what, we've got to do something about this land here. There's some problem here, and so you guys move there. You guys move there. So there's sort of governance decisions being made at different levels. There's land that falls in different categories. Sometimes the boundaries between those lands and different categories. They're either they're fuzzy or those categories overlap under different circumstances. Um, and so you get this kind of mosaic of diverse governance arrangements, diverse levels of decision making, all 
overlaid over top of each other. And so it's not like, it's not the kind of mosaic that in, in some of my work, I call this a simple mosaic. A simple mosaic is where something that fits with sort of the conventional understanding of property rights. Maybe you're in a landscape where there's some private property, there's some state property, there's some, some communal property, but it's all mapped out. You can print a map and there's clear boundaries showing everyone. What you don't want in conventional thinking is anything that's left open access. Right? And so there, there are places where you've got that simple mosaic where all the different land parcels of in the, you know, those three, three property types are there. But a pastoral system, some of these pastoral systems that I've worked in, they're not quite open property regimes like Mark Moritz described, or at least not over their whole territory. There may be sections of their territory where that open property regime fits. But stepping up at the whole landscape level, there's a whole lot of that fuzziness and flexibility, overlap, multi-level decision-making. And so that's, that's what I call the complex mosaic. Um, so that, I think, is where one of the main challenges is, is how do we do land governance in a complex mosaic like that without, without trying to simplify it, without coming in with our preconceived notions of, okay, we're going to help you, help you establish something that fits with this thing that we call commons or, or that we call community-based natural resource management. Yeah. In those pastoral systems where you've got this complex mosaic, we need to be thinking more creatively and have quite a few more tools in our toolbox and, and that, I think, is one of the key challenges in, in some of these pastoral systems for, for thinking about land governance. Yeah, it's really interesting, Lance. I feel like there's a tension in a lot of the commons literature, maybe the community, these kind of conflicting, conflicting principles. We're all about, you know, not wanting to recognize local complexity. We don't we want to avoid panaceas, but we have our own simplified framings that we also rely upon to make sense of systems often as external actors which I think can kind of lead us astray and away from this philosophy of recognizing local complexity. Well, and, and one, of those, one of those heuristics that has been incredibly useful, and I think it was part of what allowed the common scholarship to, to rise to the position it has and helped it to, to refute Garrett Hardin, was this typology, this fourfold typology where property is one of four types, right? Or three types plus the the residual category of open access where, where there's nothing. Mm. Then that typology in particular is, is one of the main things that I, that I and others who work with pastoralists have found, you know what, it doesn't, I get it. And, and it's, it's a really useful idea for communicating that, well, I mean, it was useful for refuting Garrett Hardin, right? It's okay, well, in the absence of state property or private property, you don't necessarily have over-resource, over-use of the resource because there's this other category called commons and what Garrett Hardin called commons, that's, that's not really commons. So it was, it was an incredibly useful thing, but like any heuristic, like any model is like in, eventually you'll find context in which it doesn't work. I mean, and this is one thing that was, was interesting to me is like a lot of the criticism of, of Eleanor Ostrom and in certain phases in my career. And I think it particularly in the early years of my PhD, I was buying into some of those criticisms of, of Ostrom and, and, and this framing. And I, I think a lot of the listeners will be familiar with a lot of the criticisms of you know, oversimplifying what community is, neglecting what power is, um, oversimplifying 
the, the complexity of, of traditional governance systems. And when I started to dig into these pastoral issues and trying to understand land governance and pastoral systems and these traditional systems and how these open property systems work and how these complex mosaics work, one of the ideas I turned to um, and that was really useful was the idea that property rights come in bundles. And so, you know, who, who was the author of that uh, seminal paper on bundles of property rights? It was Adela Schlager and Eleanor Ostrom. And I, since then, I've realized again and again, anytime I find something in common scholarship that's too simplistic, I, I step back from blaming Eleanor Ostrom because usually I find something that Eleanor Ostrom has written that unpacks that simplicity. Mm. And I, so I think the, the challenge then has, has not been the ideas of Ostrom. It's been sometimes common scholars buying into you know one, one particular observation or one particular heuristic, one particular metaphor, and taking it too far and not keeping track of and not making use of all the other complexities and ways of digging into digging into our understanding. Hmm. Yeah, I like this idea of a complex mosaic of kind of overlapping property regimes and bundles of rights. I think that's intuitively when you think about it, that's the way the world is in general. I mean, I think that's one of the main like traps we fall into when we think about different types of policies, types of regimes, there's this kind of impl implied presumption of mutual exclusivity that kind of creeps in there, particularly when you start down the discourse about which one's better, right? Is private property better? Is state property better? It's like, well, we actually often see these things. You, like, Anytime I've seen what you call common property, you also see individual property. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about the state's role in all of this. I'd love to um, have one of the final topics we discuss be about kind of scale and the role of different actors across scales. Because so one of the things we talked about is the relationships among communities. Going to the larger scale and the role of the state, there's a traditional narrative, at least in the literature that I've read, that the role of the state often is to kind of simplify systems. And one of the main ways they do that is to sedentarize them. So I know that you've written a bit about, you know, sedentarization and its role in these systems. And one of the things that we see in sedentarization is an increased local impact on the environment. And I think the intuition there is that that's kind of, that's going to mess with this whole system. This is going to mess with this kind of shifting uh, patterns of use. You're going to start to have you know, one, it's kind of what you just mentioned, you're going to have a local area where you do have now more like collective action um, based resource decline, because you do have now people that they can't kind of move around and shift, and they're all going to be using the same resource. Can you talk a bit about the role of sedentarization um, as a something that is or is not coming from the state? How kind of consistent is that narrative? And B, what are its impacts that you see? Is it dominant? Does it lead to this narrative that I'm talking about, about local resource intensification? Are there other parts of the narrative that we're, we're missing here? Can you talk a bit about the role of sedentarization that you've seen in your work? So, I mean, I, I think the, the discourse has started to change a bit. And uh, I mean, particularly in countries where, where pastoralists are, are prominent. Uh, you know, they're a where they're a significant part of the population. In a lot of countries that 
the thinking in govern, government circles has, has started to shift. Um, I mean, there's still, still a long way to go, but I think the drive to the drive of thinking pastoralists are backwards and they're, you know, they're, if we need to help them develop, part of development is getting them to settle down and will also help them to, to grow gardens and we'll get them to operate more like ranchers. That's still there in some quarters, but it's, it's not as common. And I think there's a, there's a growing understanding um, through, through the action of a lot of different actors, NGOs that work with pastoralists, some of the, some of the UN organizations. Uh, the, I mean, the FAO has, has gradually developed a, an understanding of pastoralism informed by you know, some of this, the scholarship and the, and the work of grassroots NGOs and so on. So that, that narrative isn't quite as strong as it used to be. And there's more attention paid to the need to figure out ways to manage things at a large scale and maintain mobility. So that's there. The other thing I'd mention too, is that the drive for sedentarization has both push and pull factors. Um, I mean, it's not all about governments and other outside forces forcing pastoralists to settle. Also, the pastoralists themselves are in many places are choosing to settle in part because things like we, they want their children to go to school. Okay? They want access to health care. And, you know, there's, there's not clinics everywhere. And if I'm off with my animal 100 kilometers by foot from, from the nearest town that has any kind of clinic, that's, you know, that's a bit of a problem. Um, so various factors there are, you know, become part of attracting some pastoralists to settle. And I mean, not all pastoralist groups too, we need to remember have, have always been, uh, truly nomadic. And so some, some pastoralist groups, they've been settled and, you know, have had some kind of permanent settlement for a long time and sort of part of how they operated, but still were extremely mobile in terms of how they manage their herds. And so if you, you know, you, ha- you look at some satellite data, and if you decide to look at a 10 kilometer circle around the village, then you may conclude, okay, these people are overusing their resource. And, and you might send an ecologist to, to look at what's happening. And that ecologist looks at that same 10 kilometer circle and would also conclude, yeah, this, this place has been seriously overused. And we've had environmental degradation as compared to what used to be here before. But if you zoom out to a hundred kilometer circle or a 50 kilometer circle around that village, well, that's, it's a different story. And so in the Kenyan context, I've heard people refer to that as sacrifice zones that the, some of these pastoralist groups, well, they have a, they have a sacrifice zone and they, they know they're overusing the resource, but the transaction costs of getting people to, to follow rules within what they would need to, you know, have a, have an ecologically optimal use of resources in that little space. It just isn't worth it in terms of all the rest of the land. So yes, they'll come back to the village because that village is placed where there's permanent water um, and permanent water seems to be the key thing. So we settled there and a school's been built there. And so that now this is, this is our permanent home. But if you want to consider, is this system sustainable? You've got to zoom out and look at the, the bigger space. So then the challenge becomes, well, how do we manage that? And it, one of the key challenges here is, and there's a driver, and, and this is fairly common in, in, in East Africa, at least. I'm not sure about other places, but there's sort of, there's some 
political capital or some political goodies that come from establishing a new village. Often that results in, in the creation of a new, a new uh, sublocation in, in the Kenyan context. Right? And then once you have a sublocation, well, someone is going to be named as chief of that sublocation. And then there's going to be certain investments that go there. So there's this incentive to create new settlements. And so now a village that had a circle of, say, 50 kilometers around it that it used to use, now in, you go one direction, 20 kilometers away, there's already another village there. And so now that possibility of managing that landscape at that scale is becoming challenging. So... I mean, I think one of the roles of uh, state actors in this then is to, yes, states want sort of simple, easy to understand solutions, but land tenure is only one of them. And I think that I would like to still keep seeing progress on communal land tenure in, in, in countries that, that haven't had strong communal land tenure. But in the pastoral settings, there are, I think there needs to be a lot of attention given to other kinds of governance tools. Uh, land use planning, for example. Um, mm. uh, you know, creation of, of uh, some kind of indigenous or community protected area that the community uses and they figure out how to fit that into their system. So there's, there's a number of possible land governance tools in the toolbox that if applied in a creative way can, can deal with some of these complexities and can deal with the complexities by, oh, we got a bit of this and we got a bit of that. We got a land use planning that controls some of this and we've got the, some community commons created at that local scale. And uh, we've got, you know, maybe a protected area that's protected some of that, that it's, it's also open to the pastoralists under certain conditions, under, you know, when there's a bad drought, for example. If you can put those together sort of bricolage fashion, then, I mean, that I think is what's, starts to look like something supported by the government, something supported by the government that starts to look like what I was calling a complex mosaic regime in a traditional system. So it's like finding, finding the state solutions that, that mesh with those complex, fuzzy, and overlapping traditional kinds of institutions. I mean, one of the main kind of reminders I think that's important there is, as you said, like we often, when we, get about, when we think about one narrative, what the state does, we often forget that the state is a complex organization itself is doing multiple things. It's multiple different agencies. And you need to think again, holistically that the state will find it's, it's going to be impacting land tenure, but it also is prov providing benefits, which are going to have its own kind of incentive outcomes. And we need to think about all that stuff at once. And we think about what the state is doing. No, I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, for example, if, you know, if you've got a water department that's drilling boreholes, can the decision-making for that water department be integrated with some kind of land use management or environmental management that's paying attention to these grazing issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the water department may look and say, okay, we see a, a group of people are settled there, let's put a borehole there. But if you think of that in a larger context, how does that fit with grazing patterns? And if you put that borehole there, is, is that gonna to lead to more pastoralist setting there? So, finding ways to have a bit more into integration and collective planning among those different different government actors each coming with their own own particular tools hmm. so lance can we return to something you mentioned towards the beginning of the interview because i'd love to just hear you talk a bit the bit about him is fikret burkeys you mentioned that you went to the university of manitoba to study under fikret and he's well known 
across multiple fields, including the study of the commons. And a lot of his most important or at least famous arguments have revolved around the importance of local ecological, traditional local ecological knowledge. I've read through his book, Sacred Ecology. Could you talk a bit about his influence on you as a PhD advisor and if those ideas I just mentioned also had an influence on you, how they might relate to some of the ideas that we've been talking about? Fikret provided a lot of support in terms of, you know, allowing his students to think through their, their questions and the, you know, the particular concepts they wanted to, or theories, whatever they wanted to work with. Um, as much as he brought that wealth of knowledge, um, you know, he made space for me to, to do my own thing. And, you know, in doing that, then that, you know, that gave me the opportunity to, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm looking at some literature on environmental governance and, you know, like I was drawing a lot on the work of Oren Young. Um, and I found his concepts, although, you know, his, his work is mostly dealing with global level governance. I find a lot of that, his, his way of making sense of what governance is, um, was really helpful. So I was combining that with commons thinking, with watershed thinking, with the literature on pastoralism, um, and and with resilience thinking, and just trying to find try and find ways that some of those different fields inform each other. And so that one of the things he did was to make space to to use that. I guess another, to, to, to bring those different ideas together and, and to experiment with them, um, I think another thing that was, um, was really helpful too was just his emphasis on um, just really going to talk to people. Just go talk to people and listen to people. Um, I, I had some professors in my PhD and before that in, in my master's who were you know, deep into the details of, of methodology and how, how correctly to use different approaches. And Fikret, I mean, he wasn't opposed to me using conventional methodologies, but he also said, you know, one of the things you need to do, whatever else you do, just go talk to people and listen to people. And, um, and I think that, that advice has served me well. And I said, I mean, I guess there's one other thing I mentioned that I think I learned from him was to just be careful of this straw man argument kind of approach. Because I, I found myself sort of gravitating towards an approach to writing papers of taking some body of theory or some paper or some idea that doesn't work and, and painting a caricature of it in order to shoot it down and say, here, my theory is better. Mm. And... I think I, I learned from him is to, you know, just recognize that there's, there's nuance in the ways different, different people describe things and that, you know, taking those caricatures too far is often unfair. And I, I, I gave the example earlier of, of Eleanor Ostrom, right? It's like, in, I, I found things to criticize in her work and I read some of the criticisms of it and a lot of those echoed true. Um, and it wasn't until later I realized and I, and I found other work by Eleanor Ostrom that went in and opened up those black boxes and unpacked things and looked at things from a different angle. Um, and so I think that's been a, been a valuable, valuable lesson as to, you know, how to how to approach and bring together different bodies of knowledge. 
Why do you think it is so tempting or maybe effective to support your own position by kind of presenting maybe a unfairly simplistic caricature of an alternative position that you then want to kind of take down? I mean, it may be just sort of human nature and, and most of us in one way or another, we're usually kind of lazy. And uh, I mean, I, I don't get upset with my younger self for, for having done this and I probably still do it from time to time. And I mean, you know, contrasting Contrasting opposing views or differing views is, is still a useful tool. I mean, to okay, this, this person comes from a social constructionist kind of perspective, and this person is writing about similar issues from a realist perspective. And okay, let's contrast these and let's let's really starkly understand the differences to see what I learned from that, to see if I fall on one side or the other, or or to see, okay, there's I can pick something from this that I agree with and I understand, or and I see how this actually is a different way of looking at that as opposed to these are two opposing ways of looking at things. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's one of the main challenges we have across multiple fields is the, my own interpretation of some of this is that we often, you know, when we're arguing for a certain point of view, part of that is a social exercise of signaling our membership into a certain group. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to signal that you're not part of this other group. Group membership matters all to, to everyone. That applies to to researchers and academics too. Yeah. So Lance, when you reflect on your work in pastoralism and the work of other other people, what do you think are some of the frontiers um, for current and future research on rangeland and pastoral governance? What are some of the unanswered either research questions or kind of research challenges, be they epistemological or social? What do you think needs to be done in the future moving forward? So I think a lot of the, the, the research on pastoralism that led to some of these kind of insights we've been talking about, a lot of it has come from case study approaches. And those have been valuable. But I think at, at some point, I think we want to step back and say, well, what else can we do and you know how can we generalize and we've the people who do work on pastoralism have say, have done a good job of saying what pastoralism is not pastoralism is is not something that fits in with those four categories for example of private property state property commons or open access we need to work now on describing what it is and that's something that started to happen and that's you know the open property regimes idea that that mark has has really developed as part of that my work on complex mosaic regimes is is an example of that trying to understand what it is and then secondly then also seeing if we can can we get beyond sort of descriptive case study kind of approaches that identify ways in which existing theories and concepts don't always work and don't fit very well to building theory that does work um, and so with uh, with support from Sasink, Mark and Mark Moritz and Roy Banky and I had a project where we got support and brought together people who work on pastoralism to talk through some of these issues. And um, it's been moving slowly since the workshop, partly because it's something sort of Mark and I are both doing off the sides of our desk. But one of the things we're doing in that project is trying to use a, a a comparative case study approach where, okay, what, what can we do to bring these case studies together, try to have some common variables and understanding, 
to make some more robust conclusions and begin to describe and work towards theory and models that that fit with pastoralism and help us speak to those other uh, the other theory that already exists. Um, and so, yeah, that's one of the things we're we're gradually working on. Um, I think it's partly then about you know these ideas that that he and I have talked about: open property regimes, complex mosaic regimes. A, a, another one that sort of a slightly overlapping concept, sovereign pastoral commons. So there's a few of these ideas kicking around of these mental models or these conceptual archetypes of a governance regime. And I think we've decided we don't want to add more boxes to the typology. It's not like we don't, we don't want, okay, we've got state property, commons, open access, private property. Okay, now we're going to have two or three others. Um, we decided, no, that, that probably doesn't make sense. That heuristic makes sense and it works. It works in some places, you apply it in some places, it doesn't work. So instead, it's just trying to understand as, as archetypes in, in and of themselves of, you know, here's if the ecological conditions are like this and the geographies like that and the politics are like this, here's, here's a model of how governance might work in a traditional system. Or here's, here's a set of insights that help us understand how a traditional pastoral system may be articulating with the kinds of structures put in place by the state, like land tenure and, and markets and so on. And so I think that's where that's where we're going is to try and dig into the nuance without to build on and learn from that past scholarship without trying to replace it because it was wrong. Well, I wish you all the best of luck. That sounds like it could be really important. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's been interesting and it's, yeah, having, having in for much of my career had, you know, in-depth case study uh, research and, you know, sort of diving into the details of one particular case, having this opportunity to step back and um, the, the, we've got, a, it, there's a group in the team who wants to approach the same questions with agent-based modeling and, and, mm. and myself, I'm looking at this comparative case study approach and trying to put all those pieces together and looking across okay, here we've, got, here we've got a collection of cases and we've got some variables and, okay, this is, this is fun to look at this in a, in a slightly different way and to, to step back and, and learn about some, some pastoral systems that, that don't fit with the ideas that I described or Mark described. That, hmm. again, are something different yet again. Okay, well, it's, how do we make sense of all of this? Um, and that's, that's proving to be really interesting. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.